0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Thesis Theater episode of the Signum Symposia series, which is far too alliterative, but I hope that you enjoy being here with us today, and we have three lovely and intelligent people to talk to you about their research. Um, (laughs) So I'm Serena Higgins. I'm the chair of the Department of Language and Literature and also the coordinator for the Thesis Program. So we have with us Aaron Masters and Dan Kinney. Hello. who have recently finished their MAs with us, and they both, or I should say they each were advised by Dr. Sarah Brown as their thesis advisor. So we'll begin with talking to Dan and Aaron about their thesis projects and their research and what they studied what they wrote about. And then after that, I will talk to Dr. Brown about her own research, what other work is she doing outside of Signum. And feel free to send in your questions as I do that for any of them or for me and I just wanted to make one announcement Signum's annual fundraising campaign is coming up very soon it's beginning this Thursday so stay tuned for a month of exciting events we hope to have some of the same types of things we've had before some live sessions perhaps a writing contest so just keep your eyes on the signum website for all of that information now I was going to discuss the signum MA program a little bit but I think that everyone here is well aware of what we do. Uh, students go through a round of 10 courses and then write a sizable, a sizable work, a conference paper size or larger, on a topic of their choice that's developed with me and their advisor, a focused piece of research that could then be presented or published professionally. So that's what we'll be talking about today. So I think I will turn it over now to Dr. Brown and our newly minted MAs. So enjoy. I look forward to hearing about your work.
1: Thank you very much, Serena. Okay, so what I thought that we could do to start off with is to just give a little overview of the work that you've been doing so that um, everybody can have an idea of uh, where your studies have gone in terms of your thesis. So uh, can I start with uh, with Dan? Can you tell us a little bit about what your thesis was actually exploring?
2: Uh, yeah, I... Focused, uh, in my thesis, on the connection uh, and relationship between uh, heroism and brokenness as it is portrayed in modern fantasy literature. Uh, by modern, I mean uh, literature of the past 20, 30, 25, 30 years, uh, American and British fantasy, um, which is most of the field. So uh, that's what I focused on. Uh, do you want me to go into any more depth than that right now?
1: Uh, well, actually, um, you mentioned that term brokenness straight away, and I'd like to get into that because that's a term you use extensively throughout your thesis. So, um, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by brokenness? What this concept meant in terms of your thesis?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I do use that extensively. Uh, Is obviously one. It's about fifty percent of the focus of the paper, uh, heroism being the main and how it relates to brokenness. Um, what I category and view brokenness as, it is as um, ultimately a point in a character's plotline or story uh, of their own life um, that is the point in their life that uh, conflict arises out of or conflict has created this chasm in their life Uh, And it is the point where heroism begins to manifest itself. Um, And there are a couple of different ways that can be done. Uh, Authors do it very differently. You have some authors who may not give you that point of the storyline. You may be reading the story, and that That may have come before the reader jumps into that person's story. That may be something that's in the character's past, something that's happened to them a while ago that we don't get to see um, uh, illustrated in front of our eyes. We may get hints of it. We may get clues to it. Uh, Sometimes, however, uh, and most authors do this, it's a point uh, er, usually early on in the story where um, it's uh, something that happens to the character that incites their progression, insights their journey, um, and it's basically the area where we uh, uh, start from when we look at that. the term heroism.
1: Okay, um, so let's continue with talking about um, heroism and um, the way in which you were exploring it in the thesis. Um, throughout the thesis, I noticed that you were talking about the role that perception plays in heroism. Could you expand on that for me?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, perception uh, encompasses a lot of different things. When we look at heroism in particular, what we view of as heroism uh, is usually a set of cultural and moral ideals. Uh, where perception is important in this is that our perceptions, uh, let's say in North America or Europe, can fluctuate differently from uh, people who grow up in a culture that is different than ours. So. Mm-hmm their perception of a character who exhibits heroism could be vastly different than our own. So heroism and villainy, uh, I don't really talk about villainy much, but it, it is related to heroism and brokenness. Um, but those things are very interchangeable almost sometimes with uh, the, where the reader grows up, where they hold their own ideals and, and values, uh, so I think perception is very important, obviously coming from this perspective, an American or British perspective, um, we have a certain criteria, mm-hmm. but it's also important that we don't definitively say, this is what a hero is, because that definition can change as we go across the globe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. To continue with that point, actually, um, you do focus on the reader's engagement with the text, um, and that sort of links in with this idea of uh, perception, how different perceptions of heroism are playing out, um, and how the reader can attribute meaning, therefore, so um, can we expand a little bit more on how you feel the reader's perception might produce meaning in terms of perceptions of heroism?
2: Yeah, a lot of when it comes to brokenness and heroism, we're, we see a, a big shift uh, about starting about thirty years ago, and the perception of morals and ideals and values and and what we call heroes, when that changes as a cultural norm or a set of values that we that we're looking for as readers, because um, when you're a reader, you're looking at something and you are going to inevitably identify with a character. Mm-hmm. Now, just the way literature is today, that's more than likely the, the hero of the story. That's the author's the whole point, you, you want to relate to that. And so what we are doing as readers, when we relate to a character and we, we put our own perceptions and perspectives in there, we're going on this journey with this character. What that does to us as readers is it confronts us with the same issues and conflicts that the hero or character uh, confronts. So we're going on this at the same time with them. What's important to understand and realize, and I think that we lose this all the time when we're reading, and ideally we're supposed to because reading is supposed to be fun, um, we forget that this, like uh, Harry Potter and uh, Lord of the Rings and things, story worlds like that in fantasy, we forget that these are written by someone who is just like us almost. We forget that these are things that someone else's mind has brought mm-hmm. to reality. So when we think of, oh, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was growing up in the world of Hogwarts and uh, and Harry Potter, because that's that that tells us something about ourselves. Why do we want to do that? And we seem to forget that. We put that as like, oh, that's an ideal, that's escapism, I want to be part of that. That came from someone else who Mm -hmm. is a character in their own story. And it's very important, I think, to to realize that after the fact, because it tells us a lot about ourselves as people in society and as as a whole. I may have meandered a little bit on that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, you can feel free to rein me in whenever. So,
1: <laughs> Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, a lot of your argument in your thesis hinges on an examination of the shift between older portrayals of heroism in literature and the way in which it's portrayed in in these more modern fantasy texts that you are looking at specifically. So could you explore for us that shift and why you think that shift was happening?
2: Yeah, I have a a passage here from my paper. and I can't say this definitively because I don't think it, it, it's I think it's impossible to say definitively, but uh, I, I wrote it, it might be possible to say that the mythologies of old were written and told with the goal of transmitting universal truths and moral ideals. Thus, the heroes of these tales represent and embody moral archetypes. They are characters that were not necessarily meant to represent actual human counterparts but rather are meant to be benchmarks and heroes of ideal moral standards. And I think that's really, the, I think that's the core of the shift, is that stories, especially the old stories, um, not, not necessarily Tolkien's era and C.S. Lewis, which is where we really kind of see the birth of the fantasy genre, but the characters that were from fables and, old mythologies were really characterizations of moral ideals, and that's great, and there's nothing wrong with that. That does not That's not to say that those are not heroes at all, but what we're seeing in that shift between uh, older fantasy and current fantasy or modern fantasy is we're seeing the heroes stop representing moral ideals, and they're beginning to embody more of the everyman feeling, where there are people who struggle with those with those concepts. Instead of I, instead of embodying uh, uh, universal truths or moral standards, they're becoming a representation of someone who is striving to meet those on a personal level, rather than uh, being something that uh, everyone looks for. Obviously, a hero of today is not going to look like Aragorn. I mean, Aragorn is. Uh, one of those characters that is, you don't get a lot of brokenness. There are, there are, you know, he has problems in his life, but they're not the characters of today, like uh, a character in uh, Lev Grossman's uh, Magician's trilogy, trilogy, the main character's name is Quentin Coldwater, and he has so many problems. He doesn't value himself highly. He doesn't, he doesn't think he's, he's not out to prove anything for anyone. Um, let me find a thing here that I wrote. Uh, I hope this is all right to do. It yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's, it's good to use your own work to illustrate your points. Oh, yeah.
2: um, let's see here. I underlined it. Let me find it. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Quentin uh, says things like, uh, he says, I should be happy, uh, Quentin thought. I'm young and alive and healthy. I have good friends. I have two reasonably intact parents. And he goes on, I'm a solid member of the middle class. My GPA is higher than most people even realize it's possible to be. But it re- realizes it's possible for a GPA to be. But there's something inside of him that is not right. He says, um, kept his little particle of shame and filth inside where it could fester and turn septic that's not something that a character of the older standards of heroism would exhibit and it's i think it's it's not trying to be more realistic but there with heroism and brokenness there's a connection going on there's also a connection between the character and the reader and the character and the reader connection is becoming much more close as we see in in Modern fantasy—that is, that I think—is where the real change is. Uh, Mm -hmm. Instead of the the hero being whoa that person, the hero is starting to become this person, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's a a, where the big shift begins.
1: Okay, Um, can we hone in a little bit on some of the uh, research that you did, some of the critical reading you were doing as part of your thesis? Um, One of the people you whose work you draw on the most is Lucy Armit. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about why it was that you found her work so valuable in the context of this essay?
2: Well, the main reason I find her work uh, extremely valuable is because she's one of the only academics uh, who is studying primarily fantasy literature, who's not afraid to study fantasy literature. There's so much academia out there that is saying... Fantasy literature, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, things of that nature. Science fiction. That's that's not real literature. Why why should we study this? Why is this important? Um, and she's one of the main voices out there that is saying this is just as important, if not more important, than mainstream literature. Mainstream literature, mm-hmm. because it is uh, what it does. It's hyper real. It's you have situations that cannot exist within real life. And in those situations, that type of literature allows us to examine things in a realm that we can't do in real life, so we're able to take things to the extreme, to uh, concepts and ideas can can be hashed out a lot in much more detail because there's only a certain level of realism you can get to before it starts to break down as a realistic or uh, real-world scenario. And uh, she's very uh, staunch on her standings about where fantasy literature belongs. And I, it, I, she's, she's amazing on that, and I think that that's something that needs to come back to academia, and it's lacking right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and her arguments are it's not hokey, it's intelligent, it's diving into fantasy literature like any other person would dive into any other type of literature, and it's something that's missing right now. So I, I, it's very valuable.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So, apart from Lucy Armit, were there um, other readers? Sorry, other writers whose uh, work you found a particularly interesting for your thesis?
2: Uh, yeah, I did. Um, Jack Zipes. Uh, I, I did a lot of research on one of his articles he wrote um, called "Why Fantasy Matters Too Much," and he. I just found out he has a new book coming out um, on fairy tales or fantasy, something of that nature, um, and I really want to look into that one. But he was very good at articulating uh, very much like Lucy Armit. He's more of a, it's not as academic as Lucy Armit. That's a very, um, it, it's, it's, it's it's academic in nature, but it's not quite as uh, in-depth as uh, Armit's But he is able to articulate things uh, when it comes to more of a theoretical type of argument for fantasy. Um, I believe his work meshes really well with Lucy Armitz. Um, he's saying a lot of things uh, that she says, uh, but with less um, primary sources behind him. Um, so I think his, he's very important uh, when it comes to that because he is very staunchly, fantasy is important. And it's almost more important than other things, because of the uh, infinite possibilities that it, it, it has with it. Um, when we examine uh, ideals and you know, social commentary, it's something that's very important. So I, I recommend his work um, as well.
1: Okay, uh, I think Prof Higgins wants a word.
0: Yeah, we have a question coming in for you, Dan, from Joe Hoffman. And then after that, we should move on and hear from Aaron. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end, I'm going to weave the two of you gentlemen together. So Joe would like to know, on which side of the line between mainstream literature and fantasy, Dan, would you put magical realists like Salman Rushdie?
2: Uh, That's a good question. Um, To be honest with you, the fact that there's a line is unfortunate to to begin with. Uh, Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be looking, in my opinion my opinion alone. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't be looking at fantasy or things of that nature as as separate from mainstream literature. And the, the unfortunate fact is that we do have genres uh, and things of that nature, and you know, if you go onto a Barnes & Noble or anything, you're, you're going to have the fiction and literature section, and then you're going to have romance and fantasy and sci-fi. Um, I don't think it should matter. Like it, a story is a story, whether it takes place in the real world or a fantasy world. There's something to be gotten out of the story, and whether or not it's categorized as something is—it it almost detracts from the from the argument, in my opinion. I don't know if that's a good answer. Sorry.
0: That is a good answer, and it sounds to me like it might be a good transition because Aaron is also looking at a genre that's traditionally been marginalized, so maybe that would be a good way to
1: take us into Aaron, so go ahead. Okay, thanks. So, Aaron, can we start the same way as we did with Dan, then, and ask you to give us a bit of a quick overview of what your thesis was exploring?
3: Okay, so my thesis uh, started by me reading a very provocative article, which is called Gothic Echoes, and it's arguing that the, the 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 kind of tagline in the introduction is that the Lord of the Rings is best read for a Gothic novel. Now, of course, that's something that I, I imagine not many people would have, have immediately thought of, and it really kind of struck me as an interesting question. What, why should it be read as a Gothic novel? And if you try to read something like The Lord of the Rings as a Gothic novel, what does that actually imply you're doing? What are you bringing to the text? What are you trying to get out of the text that is different if you're thinking about what we turn to be Gothic
1: as a genre? Okay, thank you. Um, so if we go straight into what you're doing with that then um one of the things that you do is you draw parallels between the gothic and tolkien's Mm -hmm. work particularly to the lord of the rings and uh, its relationship that it has with the past so can you explore that topic a little bit further for us
3: yeah okay so um both so both the Gothic and the Lord of the Rings are very interested in the past. Uh, I mean, every book that you read about the Gothic will give you a different definition of the Gothic. It's really difficult to define the Gothic, and that's one of the interesting things about it. But a lot of them, so there's one which I use in my thesis, which I really like, which is uh, the Gothic is the language for the peculiar refusal of the past to go away. Uh, which I quite like. And there's another one by a chap called Gerald Hogel, which is talking about the, the gothic being, uh, the idea of there being secrets of the past, which can be the, the distant past or the recent past, which is haunting the present and the protagonists in the present. It's about the idea that the, pro- the past has an overbearing effect on the present, and that driving then the plot of the novel, or any other kind of media that it has to, happens to be in. So the gothic in particular, it tends to use the past as a way of focusing on particular phenomena, or particular social phenomena, which it then wants to challenge or to use to create challenge or drama in a novel, whether that be, the organized church, whether that be empire, whether that be slavery, whether that be the family, the, all of these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so it then, what it does, it puts those in the past, whether that's the kind of the sort of past of a fake medieval period, or whether that's the past of, in, say, Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca, the past of the husband that I've just married and his previous wife, um, and then uses that to investigate how the past can still have an influence on the present. the Lord of the Rings does that too. I mean, if you think about the way that the Lord of the Rings works, the start of the Lord of the Rings, the the big problem in the Lord of the Rings is they've got this ring, which has been there for thousands of years and is still a big problem. The past is that it starts with a big artifact from the past, which they have to do something about. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to drill down to the plot of the Lord of the Rings, to the most basic level, that is what it's about. It's Mm -hmm. about getting rid of this thing from the past. Having made that connection, though, they, it then seems they're doing something very different. Uh, if you think about what I've just been saying about the way that the Gothic uses the past, the Gothic is using the past to make it very scary. The past is a lot of the time something that you need to deal with and then come out of the other side of, and the, the future tends then to be better for you having done it. The past can be very in enticing, you can be interested, you can desire the past, you can desire the things about the past, uh, but at the same time it's something that you you need to kind of come through the other side of, whether mm-hmm. that's staking Dracula, or whether that's um, you know Dorian Gray at the end of the novel of Dorian Gray getting rid in a very clear sense his past, uh, whether that's the heroine managing to get through all of the catacombs and come out the other side. What the Lord of the Rings does is, it, on the surface, it's doing the same thing, but actually what it's doing is it's holding the past up. It's kind of canonizing the past as something which you can't get, which you you have to get away from, and doing so is, is always going to be negative. There's something very entropic about the way that the Lord of the Rings views the past. It talks of, if you think about the way that Elrond describes um, the, the says that he has seen many defeats and many fruitless victories. There's no positivity at the end of that, mm-hmm. the way that Galadriel describes her journey through Middle-earth as being thousands of years of the long defeat. Um, there's the sense that even in the at the end of The Lord of the Rings, when you've got basically the past being salvaged as much as possible in the reign of Aragorn, that's there's a very clear sense at the end of the novel that that's only fleeting and that's only partial. There's the, the, part, the future is always going to be worse than the past, and that's something that, it do, that that is very different to the way that the Gothic uses the past.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, so having set up this idea of the Gothic, and the way in which um, you have certain parallels within Tolkien's writing, um, and and obviously the differences that you just articulated. You then start talking about something that completely took me by surprise, which was an exploration of campness in relation to the Gothic Uh, that I'd not come across before, which I found absolutely fascinating. But can you explain how you came to this line of thinking and what made you connect the two?
3: Uh, with gothic and camp yes mm. that probably does need a bit of explaining because mm. <laughs> that one that one didn't really come out of, the, of my reading um what it starts on the from the basic principle that the the gothic is over the top I think it's not particularly unfair to say of a lot of the Gothic that it's over the top. I mean, if you think about where the term Gothic comes from, it comes from architecture before it came from literature, and what it's doing is it's talking about the fad in the 18th century of creating these ridiculous fantasy castles and fantasy kind of like stately homes, which are pretending to be 12th century, but ridiculously over the top versions of that, and then when you start getting into literature, it's really interesting actually that a lot of the really early gothic writers are also the people who are building these big houses. Um, that you can see then that, that again, it's it's like literature, it's it's literature kicked up to 150%. You've got sex, you've got violence, you've got uh, you've got these. Uh, these overblown, not not only overblown spectacle, but overblown language. Anyone who's read H.P. Lovecraft and starts sort of thinking about his eldritch horrors and Mm -hmm. uh, people kind of flying into swoons all over the place, that that there's a basic sense of the Gothic being that there's something over the top about Gothic, I suppose that's the best way of putting it. and one of the things that that does, uh, I'm arguing in the thesis, is that it highlights the fact that you're not reading a realistic account of something when you read a Gothic novel or when you watch a Gothic film. It's not like reading Jane Austen, where you could literally have just sat yourself in that that drawing room and be listening to the conversations of people. It's not going for what Tolkien would have called verisimilitude. Um, what it's going for is it's highlighting the fact that you're reading something fictional. Um, and that is where the camp comes in. Now, camp is something which can be applied in various different ways, Um, but one of the most famous people to try to describe the Gothic was a a critic in the 1960s called Susan Sontag, who wrote not really an essay, but just a collection of notes called Notes on Camp. And one of the things that she mentions about the camp is that the camp is about exploring the idea of something as artificial, that if you appreciate something as camp you are very aware of the fact that it's not a it's you're not looking at the thing you're looking at the way the thing is interpreted as a stylistic event mm-hmm. um it's she describes camp as the um the appreciation of being as playing a role um and the idea of things not everything being in quotation marks she describes things not as a lamp but as a lamp not as a woman but as a woman and it, if you kind of get your head around that that does it, it does get quite close to the Gothic because what you get is you get all of these concepts, you get all of these characters, which are obviously like us and or are useful to us. They're exploring concepts which are not completely disconnected from us, mm-hmm. but they are, they're like us, but they are, they're different. They're, they're wrong in some way. And that is, and, and because they're wrong, you then start paying attention to the fact that they're not real. And that's where the camp comes in
1: okay you mentioned partway through what you were just saying you actually mentioned Tolkienian verisimilitude Mm. okay let's bring that back to uh, this concept of different kinds of fakeness that you actually do explore in this thesis so uh, for example the gothic camp versus Tolkienian verisimilitude Uh, can you expand on that for us
3: yes yeah I can so as I've said, so what the Gothic will try to do is it, 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 it gains a lot of its momentum and a lot of its style, as I've just explained, is based on the fact that you, as a reader, are aware that you're reading something that's not real. Um, there's a, a chap called I think it's, it's um, I can't remember his first name, but a, a scholar called Geary um, who wrote a book called The Supernatural Horror in the Gothic. Um, And what he argues is that the supernatural really kicks into the Gothic around the second half of the 19th century, which is exactly when sort of socially the reading classes are really stopping that rationalism has taken hold enough that they don't actually believe in things like ghosts and demons and things in a in a literal sense that there is actually any real possibility of a demon just popping up. Um, or a ghost just manifesting itself. There's a, a level, a base status quo of rationalism, which works. Um, and so what you get in the Gothic, when you when you read about exactly that kind of thing happening, is that it, it actually works and is interesting to people because they're aware that it's not actually a real depiction of real life. There, mm-hmm. there's, there's a constant awareness as you read it, that this is not actually true. You're con- there's a level of disconnect, sort of, the whole of the way through. Now, Anyone who's read on fairy stories will be aware that that's exactly the opposite thing that Tolkien is going for. Mm-hmm. Tolkien, when he describes secondary belief, says that you have to make sure that you, and he's drawing on people like George MacDonald here, uh, that you have when you're writing a fantasy, you create your fantasy, and you can change various different things. You can do the whole green sun thing. You can make the, the world different to our world. But then once you've done that, once you've set out that premise, your job as an author or as a sub-creator, is to make the reader be able to accept the premise, the world that you have given them, as far as possible, to give them as few opportunities as possible to jar out of that to jar out of that kind of that secondary belief, that mm-hmm. suspension of disbelief, which uh, he doesn't like that term, but that is the, the common way that is used. That them the fewest op- few opportunities as possible to break the fourth wall and forget they're not reading a re- reading a real account of mm-hmm. a world, not necessarily our world, but a world. Um, now. He's very successful in doing that, but wh- what that means is that he, the Lord of the Rings, isn't camp, um, or at least it isn't camp in the way that I'm describing. The Gothic is camp because he he is working as hard as he can to make people forget that his work is artificial. And if you forget that the work is artificial, you then can't be camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a different way of, um, of 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 drawing a line between of of getting. In the reader involved the reader is involved in a Gothic novel, one step removed because mm-hmm. they are constantly aware that they're reading a piece of fiction. You, when you get monsters, when you get demons, whether you when you get fantastic elements in the Lord of the Rings, they have been naturalized. that's why I think of, again in Arms fairy stories he describes things as not being supernatural but being hypernatural or something some other kind of natural mm-hmm. because what he's trying to do is he gives you all of this background, all of this lore, all of this uh, uh, context. Whenever he, he, whenever he gives you something that's supernatural, apart from one or two cases, um, so that you can buy it. You can go, okay, there's a Balrog here now, but I was actually kind of given enough information before and afterwards to get that, yes, of course there would be a Balrog now, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Gothic would never do that. The Gothic would throw the Balrog at you and then take it away and never explain it. Mm-hmm. Um and that, and and so there's the difference. There are certain times where it gets where the Lord of the Rings can get a bit gothic, the first time the ring raids appear, when they're mm-hmm. black riders, we don't know anything about them and they keep kind of appearing and then going away, and it's only very gradually that we learn things about the Nazgûl that is quite gothic but then when they reappear in the return of the king they're not really gothic at all because Mm -hmm. they're they're completely naturalized of course there will be ring rays at the battle of the pebble fields how could there not be Mm -hmm. whereas ring rays in the shire is actually quite disturbing and very gothic
1: Mm -hmm. okay thank you um like we did for dan can i ask you to talk a little bit about um your critical reading that you were doing for this thesis um so whose work would you say you found the most useful for what you were exploring, and why would that have been?
3: Okay. Um, well, it, it, my thesis kind of goes along a uh, 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 kind of trajectory, so I was drawing on different bits, different secondary sources in different bits. Um, possibly the one, I don't know whether the, I could argue that this is the most influential, but the one that I had to spend the most time on, but I think I got an awful lot out of, was uh, the French critic and philosopher Julia Kristeva. Um, now, I it's. Because she she writes she wrote in the, the early 1980s a monograph called Powers of Horror. And what she's doing there is she's talking about a concept called abjection. Now, this is, certainly was for me, so quite a difficult concept to get your head around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, it, what she's arguing on a very basic level is that there is an experience of interacting with something which is at once connected to you, and foreign to you, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of of something like a like a severed limb or something like that, which is at once you know connected to you, it's a it's a limb, it's part of a human being, you feel this kind of visceral connection to it, but at the same time, that's not what a limb should be. It shouldn't be separated from you, and um, and that creates and it creates this kind of interesting um, dual response of both being sort of um, very interest isn't the right, isn't the right word, but kind of compelled by it, mm. and disgusted by it at the mm-hmm. same time, and that has a lot of applicability with the Gothic in particular, and with the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings uses abjection a lot um, at, when, it, when it's talking about Gollum, when it's talking about the relationship between different sort of um, uh, separated things. There's a lot that's going on in the Lord of the Rings that's, that is that he's using the abject, and the Gothic does as well, but a lot of various different points in my thesis, it's it's a useful way of being, again, able to make a distinction between the Gothic and the Lord of the Rings. They both use the technique, but they're getting very different things out of it, and so that ended up being a useful way of tying the thesis together quite a lot.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, That's everything I have for both of you, except to just sort of finish up the talk that we're having by asking both of you the same question, which is, and we'll, we'll start, we'll let Dan answer first. Um, so here is your thesis, complete, well done, congratulations. But if you had the ability to go beyond the limits of this particular thesis, what are the, where do you think you would push your lines of inquiry? What would you like to have done that little bit more than you have within your completed thesis? Dan, what do you think?
2: Um, well, I think that, that I think there's a huge connection um, to, uh, like I said, I focused on what's traditionally uh, an American and British uh, form of fantasy mm-hmm. writing, and I, if there's more of, I'm sure that there is more of it uh, out there from other cultures, probably from the other side of the world, Asian, uh, you know, all that. That area over there that we that has a lot of fundamental differences of uh, different cultural ideals and things. I'm sure that uh, to get more of a world view of this type of thing would have been very interesting. And a lot of it goes into um, I would have liked to examine the connection between the reader and uh, the character more um, because I think that this naturally kind of flows into that eventually, um, <laughs> I would have, uh, I wanted to start out a lot grander. I remember when we first came up with uh, ideas for thesis, I was like, I'm just going to tackle the fantasy genre, and we're going <laughs> to explain what it is. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we realized that uh, there's, that's a several book thing. Um, and so we went to whittle that away to uh, what we got. But um, I think it, Starts a much bigger conversation when you look at just what's going on within the character, uh, the connection between that, and how we internalize those things as readers, and the connection between the author, the character, and the reader. I think that's a big triangle that has a lot of uh, content that could be explored much further uh, within this uh, within fantasy literature.
1: Okay, thanks, Dan and Aaron.
3: Yeah, my microphone is on. Good. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes, I think, uh, like like Dan said, my thesis proposal was um, originally much broader than it ended up being, and my thesis is the better for it, not being anywhere near as broad as it was originally. Um, But, yeah, I think... One one of the things that was a big kind of take home from me, the process of me writing the thesis was to talk to to learn to talk about the Gothic not really as a genre but as a mode because mm-hmm. like I was saying earlier on it's very difficult to define the Gothic and that's because it doesn't really lend itself very easily to being talked about as a genre it doesn't hold itself together that well um, and so I think were I to kind of carry on and do this, what I, what I would be interested in doing is moving away specifically from The Lord of the Rings as a case study mm-hmm. and looking at the ways in which you can apply the the Gothic or track down elements of the Gothic in fantasy literature, particularly early fantasy literature more, ge- more generally. Because by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, the Gothic is so diffused and has, has had such a big influence that it kind of pops up everywhere. Um, and so you, at, at, but in different degrees, and people are taking different things from it, and so when you get into the first half of the 20th century, and you're really seeing different people dealing with fantasy before fantasy becomes a thing, I know Doug Anderson argues that that only really took, ha- took place in the 1960s, that people mm-hmm. started thinking of fantasy as a genre, uh, that you've got this really interesting period where you've got the precedent of the gothic, and then you've got people moving it in different directions and so i think that would be that would be the next place to go would be to take some of the kind of the the topics i was taking talking about in my thesis and seeing how how far they can be can be kind of spread around
1: okay thank you thank you very much both of you um professor higgins if i can bring you back in with us then
0: yes indeed and uh one question for dan came in a bit earlier but um, there may be something that Erin can chime in on this, too. She said, Dan, you use the term modern, and she was wondering whether you considered the works postmodern at all as well. They seem to be more self-aware with the close association between reader and character.
1: So about that. Serena, can you bring your microphone down to your mouth, because you've gone so quiet, it's really hard to oh, hear yeah, you.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Sure. Will I, read, will I read the question again? Did you hear
1: it, Dan? <coughs>
2: I think I got it. I, would, I was talking about the the term postmodern and how uh, wh- wh- would I bring that in into this my definition of modern. Um, I think it has a place uh, for sure, but uh, there, my my usage of the word modern was only, uh, I guess, um, necessary for description. I I know postmodernism is a huge thing. Uh, I'm not too familiar with all of what that is. I would. I, I'm not going to try to say anything intelligent on that, but what uh, what I would <laughs> what I would what I say modern fantasy is is it was just really just so that we could get an idea of what time frame I'm looking at uh, of the published literature, um, meaning from like usually from the early '80s to now, last 25-30 years. Um, so I don't really know. I don't. I'm sure that there's a lot of postmodern ideology and things and that of that nature within mm-hmm. modern fantasy, but um, and I would argue that it's probably the only place in fantasy. I don't think we'll have a lot of that because postmodernism, from what I from what I understand of it, it, it it's uh, relative to a time frame. So, you know, I. I, I I don't
0: know. Yeah, I'm tempted to ask Aaron about Gothic survivals in the postmodern, but I think that's such a huge topic <laughs> that I daren't to go there, so instead I'll I'll wrap up this section with one question for both of you, and if you could address it kind of briefly. So you've talked throughout this today about ways that you've entered the conversation. So you've been interacting with previous critics, scholars, and writers who have dealt with similar topics and you've built your work on theirs and now we're having a conversation amongst ourselves. What are some ways that you want to keep the conversation going? So do you have plans for presenting your work at a conference or publishing it, or what are some other ways that you want to keep the conversation going? And um, Aaron, do you want to address that first?
3: Uh, yeah, I can do. It. Um, I think, given the length of the thesis, as it turns out, it's probably too big to be presented in one go or to be published in one particular in one single article. I certainly think, though, it is. I am certainly looking to get hopefully one, if not two, articles out of my my thesis. I think that I um, a lot of. Uh, unfortunately, there are there are. Uh, there's a limit to the number of conferences that I'm, that are available to me right now, but mm-hmm. I'm certainly looking at the idea of getting things published. I think this idea about camp, I think this idea about the past, if I can, I, I can use my thesis as a springboard to take to make, perhaps apply that a little more widely. Um, but and, and then yes, I think that's that's it. Um, it's it's a case of of keeping the talk about the Gothic and the the application of the Gothic going. I'm quite interested in. So yeah, I'm definitely looking at kind of moving that forward.
0: Very good. We hope you do, and let us know. And Dan, how about you? Uh,
2: the the uh, first thing I'd like to do is I would like to get it published, um, or uh, yeah, put in a journal or something of that nature. And I uh, I want to continue to go on from this uh, to examine some of those topics I said I might wanted to have focused on, but didn't have the time or the length of uh, ability to write anything about that, uh, and you know maybe a book eventually or something like that. That's very romantic in my opinion, and it probably will not happen, but it's worth saying that I'd like it to. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I instead of uh, rehashing other academics' viewpoints, I'd like to establish myself as someone who has, like, can be one of those people that someone references, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's a very big shadow to try to get out of, and uh, that's what I'd like to do eventually, so.
0: Yeah. Come out from under the anxiety of influence. Well, you're well on your way. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen, and we do hope to see more of your work, so let us know whenever you're presenting, publishing, um, writing anything new about this, or if you put it out there in any more popular form, like bits of it on a blog or anything, you know, make sure that everyone at Signum knows. All right. Well, I'm now going to interview the interviewer, so... (laughs) Dan and Aaron, if you want to turn off your webcams for now, but please feel free to send in questions, you and all the rest of the audience members. So, Dr. Brown, thank you. So we know what you do here at Signum, um, precepting, thesis advising, and in future lecturing. But what else? You are also an academic in your own right outside of Signum. So why don't you tell us some of your research interests in general, and then we'll get down to some specific projects.
1: Okay. Um Well, if I give you an example of the last paper I gave, which was at the Leeds Medieval Congress last July, uh, where I was lucky enough to be invited along by Dimitra Fimi, um, and there were some fantastic other scholars there as well, Christine Larson, Chris Vaccaro, who's also with with Signum. Um, I gave a paper on alchemy and uh, alchemical resonances in Tolkien's Middle Earth literature, Um, And one of the reasons for that, because that sounds a little bit where the heck is alchemy coming from, is because one of the things I posit in my PhD thesis is that Tolkien was very much a man of a moment in time. He's born at the turn of the century. Uh, He's born uh, not long before two huge world wars. The world is changing enormously in his lifetime. Uh, And so what we have when he comes to writing, in particular, The Lord of the Rings, is he's a man caught between two worlds. Uh, He has a huge love for the literature of the past, as we know. Uh, He loves the old Anglo-Saxon tales and all that sort of thing that we see resonating through um, his earlier works and with uh, the the Silmarillion and, and all those stories. So we can see him looking back towards those traditions of writing at the same time as he looks almost fearfully forwards to the new world in which we have mass... Wars that take in almost the entirety of the planet in which we have technology that is threatening ways of life, etc., cetera, et cetera. So um, my thesis kind of positions this author uh, as caught between these two worlds and sort of looking backwards whilst looking forwards. So one of the things I was looking at was, well, what are these traditions that he looks back towards? And one of the ones I was looking at was alchemical Um, resonances that you find in literature. Um, So I was talking about the kinds of patternings that you find within the Lord of the Rings in particular, such as the use of uh, particular colours that um, are connected to alchemy. So for example, um, when the alchemist uh, first begins the process and it's it's a really long and complicated process um, that brings them to the production of the Philosopher's Stone uh, what we kind of think of is um, sort of weird men hunched over cauldrons stirring them and going the Hubble bubble toil and trouble kind of thing um, and it was actually it was nothing like that it was all to do with uh, transmutation of the soul and the transformation of the self, and becoming um, the the soul perfect that could uh, rise above, if you like. And so the, the production of the Philosopher's Stone is all about that. And so what I was looking at was how the narrative of the Lord of the Rings moves through these different stages um, to come towards that sort of climax of the transmutation of the self. Um, So we start off with the Negredo stage, which is the black stage, uh, and uh, I'm talking about how you can see that reflecting in certain images, particularly within um, the Fellowship of the Ring with the Nazgul, with journeys into the dark, all that sort of thing. Um, I'll I'll not go into massive detail because I could talk about this for hours and we don't have hours. Um, So I'm going to kind of cut it kind of short. So you move into the two towers and we're moving into the uh, albedo stage, which is the white stage where we have uh, the return of uh, the white wizard. We have many images that belong to this stage, like water and white. Um, we have rivers, we have the water of the stream through and Amroth, we have the white lights as they climb the, the, the Malorn trees, all sorts of things there. We have the white symbol Muna, um, the flowers on the graves, the white tipped mountains. Moving that right along into the Return of the King where we have increasing numbers of images of red, which is the final stage. Um, of the of the alchemical process with uh, blood and flushing of the faces and all sorts of things that, that come in there. Trust me, if you start looking for these, they are right there. Um, and so my whole paper was talking about this and then asking, well, why are these in here? Because we wouldn't have said that he was a particularly alchemical writer. There are others we could argue that really do uh, fit that, that mold. And yet are, they are, and they are undeniable. All the images that you see that belong to alchemy, you can pick them out, not just across the three books of The Lord of the Rings, but actually within each of the three books you can see the three stages uh, coming along. So that was the last paper I gave, and as you could tell, I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs>
0: That's so exciting. That's, um, that's a really, really important topic, and I just want to make sure everyone knows how important it is by putting it into some larger contexts as well. So you're, you're right on the cutting edge of, of where we are in Tolkien studies, because mm-hmm. people might not be aware that for the first couple generations of Inklings studies, there tended to be um, a sort of a dismissive approach that would show the Inklings as only looking backwards mm-hmm. and not engaging with their historical moment. This was sort of a a problem, and of course there are parts of that that are necessary and true because Mm -hmm. they were professors of medieval and renaissance Mm -hmm. literature, of course, so they were looking backwards, but recently we've been starting to correct that by showing how they were intimately involved with their own moment, their culture, their literature, their times, looking at them as war poets. Okay, so some of our listeners might be saying, well, but how is this, how is this connecting? Because isn't alchemy one of the oldest and most outmoded? But no, not at all. There was, it was a very exciting moment for alchemy at, at this time when Tolkien was writing. We had had the occult revival going on um, from the, around 1890 until arguably the end of the Second World War. And there's all, this, there's all these ways that science, specifically atomic mm. science, is picking up alchemical imagery and terminology. So Tolkien is actually kind of cutting edge by doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a way of looking at him as a modernist Mm -hmm. as well, which is fascinating. Uh, Did you use Mark Morrison's book at all, Modern Alchemy? Uh,
1: I haven't used it. Have read it, and um, I'm hoping to actually uh, turn a lot of this into a book if I ever get the time to do that. And so, yes, I would actually be drawing on uh, Morrison's work there for sure because um, obviously within... Even, you know, you talk about having a, a limit to the framework of a master's thesis and you think, oh, a PhD thesis, so much bigger. But there's still a limit to the framework of it. And because I was looking backwards and on the time and looking forwards, there was still a limit to how much I could actually do. And I had a whole chapter on alchemy in my thesis. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even so, there were limitations. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. I would be looking at expanding out into that uh, and drawing on that moment of the occult revival. Uh, and also the fact that he was reading Carl Jung um, and Jung wrote extensively on alchemy and its effects on uh, he was looking into modern psycho What was at the time modern psychology? Um, and I know that Tolkien was reading Carl Jung because I was lucky enough to go diving into the Bodleian and, and spending many hours in the cellar. <laughs> handling all his papers, and there were notes on his readings of Jung. Really? Really. <gasps> yep. Oh, that is so
0: exciting. Yes, I didn't well, know it was that. It Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Dan was it in our class one of the classes that I was precepting that question came up someone asked do we have any evidence that Tolkien read Young?" and none of us knew so there you go <laughs> there's our answer that's magnificent mm-hmm. um, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what we mean by the occult revival like, so what was that and what was happening with that in Britain at the time
1: okay well uh, as far as I'm aware because I haven't gone hugely into this I've more sort of become aware of there was this sort of um, revival going on around him There was an increased um, interest in what would have been thought of as something very old, very ancient kind of ideas. And it's starting to have um, resonances within some of the uh, literature at the time that he was he would have been quite aware of uh, and having more of a presence within. Um, culture uh, within within Britain. Uh, I know you actually have far wider sort of reading on that than, than I do but uh, again it's something I'm hoping to draw on more extensively if I ever get to write this book. That would be really good.
0: Yeah, Well, I suppose I might as well indulge myself since we're having this conversation and I have a microphone here. Um, this is fascinating from another point of view, too, because most of you know that I've done work on Charles Williams mm-hmm. and while he and Tolkien were really close friends, later on Tolkien looked back and was a bit more critical um, when things started being revealed about Charles Williams's occult involvement and all mm. that. So this is fascinating to me to say, ah, Toller's maybe you were using some of this imagery as well, Mm -hmm. which was one of the elements that we know he
1: didn't like in Williams' work and that he sort of dismissed. Which which makes it so interesting that it was so prominent and it's so seeable when you you start reading it through that lens. When you look at it through that optic, it becomes so obvious that it's there. You wonder how much of that was consciously uh, woven in. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: that's very much like the Planet Narnia debate, that mm-hmm. we can see this beautiful pattern in Narnia Chronicles, but the question is, are we seeing intentionality or not? Mm-hmm. Are we imposing a pattern that works? It definitely works, and it's definitely an insightful and brilliant reading, but is it essential for us to say that, that this was done on purpose, mm-hmm. and that it was crafted that way mm-hmm. uh, But if this is something that's so important, both in the literature that Tolkien is studying and in the culture at the time, we can see how it's part of the essential furniture of his mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, no writer is writing in a vacuum, after all. Uh, And uh, a man like Tolkien would have been uh, very immersed in uh, literature of the day and would have been having those conversations. And I would say it would be inevitable that it would start to seep into his own subconscious in terms of his writing. But uh, yeah, it's in some ways, and and there are many critical theories that will do this, in some ways one can dismiss intentionality as saying, well, that's a side issue, actually.
0: Yeah, the whole thing is there. It's there and it
1: works and it gives
0: us insight. It's a powerful symbolic system. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Mm. Um, So Joe Hoffman is saying that your paper sounds fascinating. Can he read it anywhere?
1: I haven't actually published it or anything because I'm hoping to weave it into uh, this book that I am still planning on writing, Um, but uh, the the paper itself, which is obviously a very, very small amount of that work, I am happy to place that on the bookshelf for uh, Signum if they would like it.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, we're we're trying to work on a faculty bookshelf, so that would be another nudge to get me to get me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kate Neville is saying you should do a lecture on this topic during the fundraiser. Hmm, oh. Let's, let's <laughs>
1: talk about that. Maybe we, we
0: could volunteer me for lecture. About, yeah, maybe we could weave something together about like modern alchemy and the That'd occult fun. and the its yeah. relationship to the Inklings. Maybe we could get maybe one other person on on Lewis, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, that would a be interesting. We need a fourth person on Barfield, because Barfield gets yep. overlooked, and he mm-hmm. was deeply involved. Um, in, yeah. In his anthroposophist, yeah uh, thoughts. Yeah. Okay, I mean, um, in, the, so in the
1: lecture series that I'm doing on Tolkien, sorry to interrupt, uh, in uh, the summer semester, there will be some alchemy in there, I promise. It's going to find okay. its way in there, just, just a very little bit, just a little bit.
0: Uh, so did you see the uh, recent
1: Inspector Lewis episodes about alchemy and Charles Williams? Listen, Inspector Lewis is one of my not guilty at all pleasures, so yes. Excellent. <laughs> yes, I definitely okay, So
0: everybody, did. check it out. Go and find those episodes. Um, so you say you're weaving this into your larger
1: book project. Do you want to talk more broadly about that as well? Okay. Um, well, again, this is one of those things that I'm, I'm hoping to have time to do because um, – It would be nice to think of myself as an academic, but I am actually a high school English teacher and I work many, many jobs. And my working week is approximately, well, it's somewhere between 90 and 100 hours a week currently. So writing that book is going to be very much squeezed into the hours that most people would actually think of as sleeping time. Uh, So this might take a little while. But um, my plan is to... um, use a lot of my thesis work to actually expand it outwards and write that book that is positioning Tolkien as this man of the moment writing in response to modernity. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, just to move away from the sort of looking back thing that we've already discussed, one of the things that I talk about is the ways in which he looks forward in some trepidation to what is coming to that future. Mm -hmm. Um, His engagement with technology, for example, uh, one of the critics that I draw on for that is Donna Haraway. Uh, her work on the cyborg um, works its way into my thesis, for example, uh, and looking at the ring itself as being an issue of technology. So it's it's looking at those fears that come from the unknown that, that face that world that Tolkien is living in, uh, where it, you know in the 1950s you're talking about a, a world that is in a state of anxiety. And I'm thinking about Britain in particular is in a state of anxiety because nothing is as it was. That old Edwardian world that uh, he was very much brought up in, where the social structure was very fixed, where people were born into classes, where um, the great houses had servants and this is the way life was. Everything has been turned upside down. Uh, And two two huge wars have done that. But also you have a a Britain that is becoming totally different in the way that it looks, because um, one of the anxieties that that is there is the influx of the foreigner coming into this very fixed british world this very white fixed british world it's a large number of immigrants coming in who've been invited in by the way um, because of the lack of workforce and this need for more people to come in and help rebuild britain you've got uh, the people coming in from the caribbean you've got people coming in from india um from china from all over the world who have been invited in and in they come into a society that does not know what to do with this Um, and so Uh, one of the things that I explore is this issue of foreignness, of being outside of one's world and what that means for, for example, the fellowship, what it means for Frodo to no longer be of his world. When he returns to the Shire, he is a foreigner. He doesn't belong there anymore. What does that mean for him? Uh, It means a great deal because He's never at home again. He never feels like he's accepted again. There's a lot of exploration of um, foreignness and miscegenation and all that sort of issue within The Lord of the Rings that is, I think, a reflection of some of these anxieties of this um, Mm -hmm. modern world that Tolkien is living in and, I believe, writing about. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's such an important topic. You need to do it. We need to have <laughs> Some this book. Tell and me meanwhile, that has time. <laughs> that's yeah. Meanwhile, that's the, the the basis of the course that you'll be teaching for us. Yes, it is um, yes. at Signum yes. and Futures: Tolkien and Modern Anxieties. Mm. Great. Well, we want to wrap this up soon. But does anybody have any questions for Dr. Brown, or any lingering ones for Dan and Erin? You can send those questions in right now, and we can. We can address them if you wanted to talk about any overarching themes that you saw in this discussion or ask anything at all. Now is the time to do that. That would be grand. We have one coming in. Um, (laughs) Jen just says that mainly she wants to say, Dr. Brown needs to do every single project she mentioned.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Jen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. But I mean, they really—they really are on the cutting edge. They're where we are in inkling studies, and they're where we need to go. I mean, um, John Garth's work on Tolkien mm. and the war. Oh, it's so important! Uh, that, that's Janet Brennan Croft's work on on Tolkien in his mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. The, the book that I supposedly have forthcoming on the Inklings and King Arthur and the way King Arthur was used as an image in both World Wars mm-hmm. and how that's both backward looking and in the moment and looking forward. Right. This is sort of where we are in, in this scholarship, these are important
1: subjects. Mm, I agree. I agree. Because Tolkien studies need to grow. As you were saying, there's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with those early Tolkien studies where they were looking back at those old traditions of writing. And as you say, most of those who were writing on Tolkien studies at the time were medievalists, for example. Right. But if Tolkien studies is going to grow and to show its relevance in uh, critical theory... Um, which I'm, i'm a little tired of defending tolkien studies to some people not to people here in this symposium obviously but still then we i think need to move forward and show that there are other ways in which we can examine tolkien's work and the rest of the inklings obviously
0: yeah absolutely All right. Well that's a strong note, I think, for closing on. I don't see any more questions coming in. So thank you everybody for being here um, and do tune in to events throughout the fundraiser throughout the next month or so. Um, We have a, a really good practical question here, which I'm really great. Thanks. I'm glad that Jen asked this. As a thesis advisor, what is one piece of advice that Dr. Brown would give to people who are preparing to start on their
1: thesis? Okay. The most important thing that you need to do is decide what the focus of that thesis is going to be. It's the most important thing, because until you have that, you really can't sit down and start working on it. Um, And that may take a little bit of time. And I think you have to give yourself that time and be a bit kind to yourself about that, because you may come to writing your thesis with an idea and that's great but almost inevitably that idea is going to need to get a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller. Um, So I think it's about giving yourself time to create that focus but understanding that until you have that really focused nugget of an idea that will be at the heart of what you would come to your master's thesis wanting to do, uh, then it's not going to get down the road that you want to take it on.
0: That's really good. Um, Would you say that that idea at the beginning should be a question, oh, yes. rather than yeah. like even an observation. It yeah, should yeah. be a thing that, that you actually don't know yourself,
1: mm-hmm. Yes.
0: and maybe a question that others haven't answered yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a
0: really great way to go about
1: it. I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, expressing your thesis as a question, it's very helpful, because you're immediately thinking about, well, how do I respond to that? And that can then inform some of the reading that you will go off to do.
0: Yeah. And Kate Neville, who uh, you're just finishing up your thesis now, right, Kate is saying, keep an open mind because research will shape things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you may begin thinking this is the exact direction that I'm going and then stumble across other scholars or manuscript materials or anything else uh, that changes your direction. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Which is why I say be kind to yourself. Give yourself that time to go off and and do that and uh, start to shape your thinking and then start to bring it down. Because yeah, you you need to have it, in the end, it will need to be a really tight thought that you are following um, through your thesis.
0: Yeah. And that's one reason we have it as a two-semester process Mm -hmm. here at Signum, that we have a semester of reading and figuring that out, you know, knowing what you need to know so you can focus, and then a semester of writing. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. This has been delightful. I love talking with you. I look forward to reading more of your work. Do send it to me and we'll try to get a faculty shelf created before too long. Um, And thank you, Dan and Erin. Congratulations on finishing your master's theses. And I will be in touch about that as well because we'll be archiving it with the Signum Library, each of your theses there. And Everybody else, thanks for being here and spread the word about future events like these and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye.